Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Don't forget, if you like what you hear on the podcast, you can always read more about it. Uh, just get yourself a Times digital subscription. Go to the times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Now, lots of you have already got in touch about playing the quiz on my Times Radio show. We do the quiz, can you get to number 10 every week, every day even, at uh, just before one o'clock. If you want to play the quiz, uh, just email your name and your number, matt.chorley at times.radio. We'll get you on to play the quiz very soon. Right, coming up on today's episode of the podcast, uh, today marks the start of an election which you probably haven't heard of but might have quite a big impact on politics and the next general election is the vote to decide who will lead Unite, the trade union, the biggest donor uh, in recent years to the Labour Party. What difference will that make to politics? What is the role of trade unions uh, in the 21st century? I've been speaking to some uh, leaders from trade unions and uh, historians about the Labour Party's link with the unions and what that means uh, today. That's coming up in our big thing on the episode. But first, we kick off, as ever, with our columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Now, uh, Libby, in the, just moments ago, we get news that someone else has been pinged. Uh, it's the Duchess of Cambridge <laughs> has now been pinged. Uh, a, royal, a royal ping. A royal ping. And maybe she's got a bit special sound. Maybe it's that somebody... That's, I, I hope rather than just pinging, there's a sort of... Um, uh, a trumpeter or something comes in and uh, alerts <laughs> yeah, her to the fact good, yeah. she's now got it isolated. Oh, but you've written in your column today in the Times about how you've had enough, enough tested tracing, and you've, you want the NHS contact tracing to ping off. 
Yes, that's, that's not, not, not my headline. I wouldn't be so vulgar about that. It'll be the Times doing that. But um, <laughs> no, the, my main target was the, uh, the, the, the waste and inefficiency and consultant mania of test and trace. On, on many fronts, it's just been so rubbish. And there's this inflexibility. If you're pinged £1,000 fine for breaking what is basically full house arrest, uh, you know, is, that's unenforceable, but it's still there. And uh, you should, from the beginning, have had an option to take an immediate lab test or a series of lateral flow tests for release. Now, they've been piloting something like that. They seem to be only piloting it on Michael Gove, as far as I can see. Uh, but th that inflexibility really, uh, you know, I, I feel has to go. And um, also, the other half of what I was writing was a plea for thinking through, please think through, how it's actually going to be when over the half, over half of the country is still sceptical and fearful. Um, and you say, OK, masks no longer needed, this no longer needed, that no longer needed. Shops and businesses have really got a right to make their own rules if they're worried without harassment. And we're seeing a huge epidemic of attacks on retail staff at the moment anyway. And it seems to me the government's got to make it quite clear that any business or theatre or shop is absolutely entitled to say, look, mask, carry on masking. That's what we ask you to do here. And I just have a feeling it's, it's going to be chaos. That, that's, that's my fear about it, that it'll be, oh, let's have some liberty, and then there'll be a whole lot of conflict going on. But the getting rid of the pinging, getting rid of test and trace, I think would be a fantastic uh, step forward. The problem, the problem is if you have different businesses doing different things, it's sort of logic seems to go out the window. So I know from the uh, last couple of weeks, try to go clothes shopping, you go into one shop, you can try on a pair of trousers, you go into another shop and all the... The, the changing rooms were closed. Now, there can't be any particular, uh, you, you know, medical reason for that. Otherwise, it would be outlawed. But, the, but it just becomes really fun. And actually, I found myself then not going again to the shop that I knew the, the change rooms were changing. And actually, the one I'm thinking of in particular next have now reopened their change room. Nothing has changed in the great Boris shop, Johnson shops advice. Shops private businesses. But no, yeah, I, shop, but I suppose, I suppose my point is that, I mean, like, that as a result, I won't they all end up drifting towards no masks? That's, a, that's basically the point I was making, is the, the, the sort of... If, if, if other places aren't wearing masks, like you said, if places are getting grief, you know, if they try to enforce masks, won't they just drift towards not having masks? Yeah, I think they, they will. But on the other hand, I, I, I mean, the other example is, is theatres, you know, small theatres. If they feel that people will feel safer in masks, you know, and, and their audiences can agree with that, they, they should be allowed to do that. I mean, it's it, my worry is that there'll be lots of cases people will be moaning about their human rights like they do at the moment about exemptions. And <laughs> there was a woman the other day who, who she, she, was, she, she was a masked woman and she slightly accidentally jostled somebody who was unmasked. And the unmasked woman said, go away you're trying to kill me and the woman said I'm sorry you're not wearing a mask and the woman who had no mask on said I've got anxiety I can't wear a mask and you know we're, we're getting so much nonsense about it that it'll be great when it's all gone but I just think private businesses should have the right to say actually we're still distancing actually we're still masking if they want to I mean I wouldn't want to but if they want to they should be free to uh, what do you think, uh, Rachel? Where, where will this go if it is left to individual? I suppose businesses can always say, you know, you need to have a shirt collar on to come in here or you've got, you know, they often enforce, <laughs> well, you know, no football. I was amazed to go to a Weatherspoons the other day and find they were turning away people for wearing football shirts. I was blind. No, if even Weatherspoons. Weatherspoons. <laughs> Uh, you had to wear one. Yeah. <laughs> As a commercial decision, that struck me as a bit odd. But do you, do you think this is going to work if essentially the sort of health of the nation is left to decide, you know, to businesses to, to enforce their own rules? 
Well, what I find really hard is that it's all become so political. As Libby says, it's it's a sort of angry anti-mask wearers. Makes me almost want to wear a mask more, even though I hate them. <laughs> you know, it's that sort of way. It's become somehow part of this dreadful culture war that it's mask or no mask. Um, and I just think of it as being polite. So if you feel that you're in a busy tube, it's not really about whether or not you want to wear it. It's polite to other people. So I think in the end, hmm. it'll be the sort of what the majority of people feel is polite and decent. I don't think it'll in the end be up to what businesses decide. It'll be much more that sort of sense of broad public opinion. But what I worry about is that you've got sort of noisy people on both sides making it very political, whereas actually it's just about what's polite. <laughs> but on, I think on Libby's wider point, I really agree about this trek and trace and pinging, particularly when it comes to the schools, because, you know, anyone with kids knows the children have just been, they've missed so much school anyway, but then they're constantly getting effectively pinged by being sent home because they're in a bubble with someone who's tested positive and then they're off for another 10 days or another one of my sons the whole year was sent home for a day while they worked out who was in the bubble and who wasn't and it's the I think that's what they've really got to sort out so they haven't it's all about it's fine we can um, liberate everyone because the NHS can cope but that's not the only factor it's not just about health it's also about the education that you have to make sure they've really got to announce that at the same time Time, what they're going to do about these bubbles in schools because you can't have that going on at the same time as liberation because otherwise you're going to get more and more children constantly being sent home. Yeah, one of the things, Libby, that I... So, I mean, Rachel, Rachel, you're the, Rachel's the, the education expert here. Uh, all these children being sent home to isolate, especially in areas where houses are crowded and people are working, do you really think they're all isolating when they go home for 10 days? I mean, of course not. Who thinks they go to their bedrooms and stay there? And, and that's the another, point. They'd be safer yeah. in school. And, that, and that's the other point, actually. It's quite dangerous if you have a system where people just think the law's an ass. They effectively stop respecting the rules. Um, you know, that the, they think rightly that there's no logic to being at home supposedly in your bedroom when you're not in your bedroom isolating because it, you then have a sort of loss of respect for the for the rules and then then that's that way lies anarchy if we're not careful so you have to have a system that people is credible and that people continue to respect and I think there's a danger with the track and trace that that's going if not gone and I do wonder, the sort of return to normal and having to live with it, which is all the sort of language that Boris Johnson is using. And previously, it was, you know, Boris Johnson, uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic, likened it to, you know, it was no worse than the flu. It, clearly, it was worse than the flu. It spread more quickly and killed uh, uh, many more people. But I do wonder, and I appreciate that neither of you are epidemiologists, but I do wonder if, <laughs> if we do reach a point where if most people are vaccinated or double-jabbed, is it actually just like the flu? That if it's it becomes a thing which circulates, but nobody who's double jabbed or very few people who are double jabbed get seriously ill with it. So we do just have to live with it. We don't have to every time you go a bit near someone with it, uh, all have to stay indoors and then you know and testing yourself every seven days. We don't go around testing everyone for flu or uh, lots of other things, um, and that's just not sustainable in the in the long term, is it, Libby? 
No, it's, it's not. I mean, and, and the, the business of um, the vaccination protection, we've just had uh, somebody pointed out this rather wonderful example in Andrew Marr, who got it. He got it because he was at the G7, which was obviously designed to spread it. You know, that was the point of the whole thing. And he, he got it. And he's a man who's had a stroke and he's certainly getting on a bit and he's definitely weakened. And he got it. But within eight or 10 days, he was back at work again. You know, and that simply wouldn't have happened before the vaccination. So we do have this layer of protection in vaccination. And I think we have to accept that we have that and not uh, not not cower the whole time. Um, it's uh, it's very difficult judgment because the moment you say that, somebody else will say, well, you know, my grandma was very, very ill and how dare you go around spreading it. Everybody stay indoors forever. But that can't happen either because that's killing people as well for other reasons. But remember that children haven't been vaccinated and aren't allowed to be vaccinated. So that's what I sorry to keep going on about children. But it is I do feel it's really unfair on them if we say it's fine. Everybody can go about their business because vaccines make us all safe. And children haven't ever really particularly got ill from this in the first place. But they have suffered enormously from the closing down of schools and education. So you can't it doesn't work to only do half of the opening up. You have to do the schools have to be right at the top of the queue. Yeah, and again, you know, when yeah. it's when it's left to uh, their own devices, you have such different rules between different schools as well. Whether it's you know, exactly. sports days or end of term things and trips and all of that, some schools seem to be much more um, confident about returns to normal than 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 others. Let's um, move away from coronavirus now for a moment, just because it's nice to um, uh, some really uh, interesting. <laughs> Uh, polling in the Times today. It was, in fact, it was on the front of the Times. Woke culture war is dividing line, uh, biggest dividing line amongst uh, voters. Frank Luntz uh, spent 30, nearly 30 years carrying out uh, work for the Republican Party. He was on Times Radio a couple of weeks ago, did one of our focus groups for us. Um, he's been speaking to Eleni Correa and saying that he's uh, he thinks that wokeism and the culture wars are on course to become the biggest dividing line in British politics. Uh, within six to 12 months, cultural divisions in Britain would, will match those in the US, he says. The problem with woke and with cancel culture is it's never done. The conflict and divisions never end. This is not what the people of the UK want, but it's coming anyway. I have to say that um, already this morning, quite a lot of uh, British pollsters have been um, taking issue with him and finding fault with it and saying that not everything that goes on in America necessarily comes here. But what's, what's your take on, uh, on this, Rachel? Well, I thought it was a really interesting piece that and uh, there is definitely something in the fact that this these cultural divides are becoming the dividing line in politics and the parties are seizing on that to some extent, you know, whipping up these rows about statues or flags or whatever. What I'm not sure about is I do think there are big divisions between people. It's partly a generational divide. It's partly an educational divide um, between better educated and less well-educated people, older and younger. But but I'm not sure to what extent people vote on those issues. So people may feel very strongly about um, cultural issues, but I'm not sure when they come to deciding who they're going to support and how they're going to vote, whether they actually decide on that basis. Uh, And I think there's a bit of a blind alley for the political parties if they do try and go down that route, because I'm not, I think in the end, people are much more concerned about, you know, whether they can afford to eat and live in their house and whether the schools are good and whether the hospitals are any good, rather than, uh, you know, whether you you should have transgender lose or whatever. And so I think although people feel very, very strongly about it, and a few people feel particularly strongly about it, I'm not sure it's a kind of electorally critical. I think it's really interesting, though. I suppose that's the point, isn't it, Libby? You could, you could, you know, spend your while away your time between general elections fretting about flags and statues and 
trans toilets. But then ultimately, when you come to the election, you'll decide who looks like the best person to be prime minister. What's it going to mean for the money in my pocket? You know, can my children buy a house? Is my school any good? Uh, and those are ultimately uh, long term have been the things that have decided how people vote. That's true. But the, the business of the woke and anti-woke thing has really got to be sorted out. We need argument. We need articulate argument. I'm astonished that universities are not really saying this, you know, and saying you can't cancel. What you do is argue. If someone says something you think is wrong or thinks something wrong about black people or trans people or women or whatever, you argue with them. You say, hang on, three reasons. I'll tell you three reasons why you're wrong about this. Listen to me and then you tell me three reasons why you think I'm wrong. Let's argue. Let's do this. What is so frightening is the cut-off cancel nonsense. The idea that if somebody once tweeted something stupid or if a politician once said something ridiculous, you must immediately cut them off and, you know, never speak to them again. I mean, the, the whole culture, both from left and right, is disastrous. You know, there's on one side, you've got the never kissed a Tory people. And on the other <laughs> hand, you've got, the, oh, they're all just libtards people. It, <laughs> none of this does any good at all. We've got to go back. We've got to go back. And I, I think you should lead the way in this, Matt, to old fashioned scorn and despising. Say, yeah, you think that you're a div. I disagree with you. Uh, you're wrong. Say ho, go on. Takes all sorts to make a world. You're wrong. Move, you know, move on to argument and scorn and and thinking what you think and arguing for what you think. I think at the moment we're getting into this awful thing of, of cutoffs. I hate the cutoffs. I completely agree with you, but the problem is when you have a culture war debate, it's not about my opinion versus your opinion. It's sort of morally right versus morally wrong, or at least that's how people see it. So it's not possible to have a kind of intellectual disagreement because it's a sort of almost like a moral yeah. debate, isn't it? Which that's what I find no, you can, so but you can argue dangerous morals. and off-putting. You can argue yeah. moralities. Mm. I, I'd argue moralities. I'd go right back to basics. No, absolutely, you can argue. I really think you always can. Yeah, well, but that's why people don't. I would I think take up the it. challenge, Libby, to lead the charge. <laughs> to what do we want? More scorn and mockery. That's what we want, and not we don't cancel anyone. We won't cancel anybody. Libby Person, Rachel Sylvester, there, and like I said, you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to the Times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, what's the point of trade unions? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, it's time for this. Let's start with the history. Professor Tim Bell is a professor of politics and at Queen Mary University at London. When I spoke to him, I asked him how the Labour Party was born. We um, can go back to the beginning of the 20th century when the trade union movement was getting fed up with uh, the Liberal Party, which at the time was the main opposition to the Conservative Party, uh, for a number of reasons. It didn't feel that the uh, Liberal Party was uh, advocating for the working man and the trade union movement uh, as much as it should do in Parliament. And it also um, was very resentful because the Liberal Party wasn't picking trade unionists and working class people to be candidates uh, as the trade union movement had hoped. So the trade union movement founded something called the Labour Representation Committee, which was originally a sort of ginger group, if you like, uh, that morphed into um, the political party that became the Labour Party. The trade union movement then sponsored its own candidates uh, and some of those got into Parliament uh, just before the, the First World War. And then very soon after the First World War, you saw the Labour Party uh, surpass the Liberal Party uh, and become the, you know, the opposition to the Conservative Party. And uh, ever since then, of course, that's been the case. And ever since then, the trade unions have been the main financial backers uh, of the, the Labour Party. They've also, of course, um, got uh, quite a say in Labour Party politics because they still have uh, what's called the block vote uh, at conference. So they, they make a, uh, a very big difference to Labour Party policy. They're also represented on the NEC. So they're very powerful. And over time, obviously, the number of people who are members of uh, trade unions, the power of trade unions in, in the country as a whole has fallen. In recent years, actually, the number of people in unions has gone up a bit. But generally, the trend has been uh, downwards. Mm. Is it right to characterise that as a result, the union influence on the Labour Party is stronger than it is on the country as a whole? It's sort of disproportionate. Is that a fair characterisation? Yeah, I think that I think I think that is fair. I mean, if you look at 1979, um, over half of working people were in trade unions, and if you look now, it's around 23, 24 percent. Um, and there's a, a a lot of people in the public sector, but fewer people in the private sector. So that's a very, very big decline. But actually, the trade unions hold on the Labour Party. Um, I wouldn't want to call it a stranglehold, but obviously, some opponents will do. Um, remains pretty um, much the same as it has, particularly in terms of the the financial dependence and in terms of union representation uh, on the the NEC and at conference. And, of course, uh, at a local level, sometimes trade union um, branches can make a difference to, you know, who is selected or, or, you know, worst-case scenario for some MPs, who is uh, deselected. So, yes, I I think it's fair to say that um, the unions have, as it were, lost their hold on the UK, but they certainly haven't lost their hold on the Labour Party. And when we see unions having a say in Labour Party policy, is that always, you know, focusing on workers' rights? Because, you know, that's what you'd want. You'd join the union. The union is a bloc, can uh, seek to, you know, get better terms and conditions for their workers and, you know, maybe try and get the Labour Party to sign up to that? Or or do we see uh, the sort of policies that unions ask for actually going way beyond that? And it's just a sort of, it's just another, you know, a wing of of the political party. 
Yeah, I mean, I think if you think about it, if you're a trade union, you are also going to be interested in um, welfare benefits. You're also going to be interested in the NHS because in in some ways they um, comprise what used to be called back in the 1970s, the kind of social wage uh, that we all have as well. You know, the the more that um, uh, services are provided by the public sector, uh, the further your salary goes, if you like. But of course, there is a trade-off because those uh, those public services have to be funded by taxation, and, and that taxation will be paid for uh, by uh, union members uh, as well. So it does go beyond the simple workplace stuff, although that is still very, very important. And uh, you know, the, the bargain is still there. Essentially, the, the the unions fund the Labour Party to get into power. Uh, to ensure that legislation, uh, while it doesn't necessarily kind of over-favour working people, tries to protect them and tries to promote their interests. The, the Conservatives, particularly when Ed Miliband was uh, leader of the Labour Party, the Conservatives really hammered away at the idea he was in the pockets of the unions, he'd been chosen by the unions, and this was seen as a real negative, it became a sort of pejorative term uh, mm. to have anything to do with the unions, even though millions of people, members of them, you know, in their workplace and that sort of thing. Is it is it now a hindrance politically, in the sort of the, when you look at politics more broadly, is it is it a hindrance for uh, one of our major political parties, for Keir Starmer, uh, to have that link to the unions, part in part because of you know this sticks with the toys to be with, but also because he can't always do exactly what he wants. Well, I mean, I think in terms of public opinion, I'm not sure now that unions are the kind of bogeymen that they used to be in the 1970s and, and 1980s. So I, I don't think that the public necessarily see it as a huge uh, disadvantage. It uh, does, of course, however, as you say, represent a constraint for any Labour leader. He, he or she is not able to do uh, exactly what he wants because uh, he or she's always going to be looking uh, over their shoulder to to see what the, the unions uh, want as well. And of course, the, the main problem really is the financial problem. Um, it's you know been very, very difficult to try and mount a case in this country for state funding of political parties. Now, while that is the case, then Labour has to get its funding from somewhere. And the obvious place is trade unions. Now, Labour had a much bigger membership, obviously, in recent times, and that's helped. But actually, the trade unions are still very much the main paymaster, if you want to use that conservative phrase, uh, of the Labour Party. So in 2019, for example, I think of, a, of the party's total income, it was something like 18 million uh, at a central level. I think about 12 million of that came from the trade unions. So you can see that dependence uh, is still there and it's something that no Labour leader can afford to ignore. Just finally, Tim, how does the, the, the ties between the Labour Party and the unions in the UK compared to other centre-left countries around the world? Well, uh, it's much closer in institutional terms. There are very few places in the world where the, the trade union movement has, uh, as it were, institutional power within the Labour Party in the same way that it does in the UK. Having said that, um, the idea that somehow you know, left of centre parties all over the world are getting rid of their trade union links, you know, long, no longer want to have, uh, no longer want to have anything to do with uh, the trade unions, is wrong, uh, because. Uh, the trade unions provide uh, a certain degree of ballast ideologically. They provide a certain number of workers for the party at election time. And also, um, you know, there is still an ideological 
affinity, if you like, between social democratic parties and trade unions in terms of you know, their um, support for the, the public sector. So the relationships are quite close. They're not perhaps as close as they once were, but they've certainly not been a complete divorce. So in recent years, union membership has grown a bit, but it's still significantly down over uh, the past few decades. Dave in Preston has been in touch saying the point of trade unions is it's always been to represent the interests of working people. They're required now as much as they ever were. Uh, well, in a moment, we'll hear from the uh, uh, General Secretary of the GMB Union. First, Francis O'Grady, who leads the Trades Union Congress. Uh, and I asked her to explain what uh, unions exist to achieve. So the TUC is the umbrella organisation for trade unions across the UK. And, you know, together we represent people at work and try and win better working lives. Better pay, better safety, the stuff that matters. Yeah. And the idea being that in a workplace, if one person's got a problem, it's them against the company. But if everyone clubs together collectively, then they'll be able to, you know, essentially bargain, you know, get better paying conditions and that sort of thing. That's the, the origins of union. Exactly. It's, you know, how, how do we level up that imbalance of power at work so that people get treated with dignity? And the best way is through a trade union. You know, it's all the, all the evidence is there that people who are in a trade union are much more likely to get higher and more equal pay and better conditions at work, like, you know, family-friendly hours, safety, training opportunities, the things that really matter to people. And looking at the statistics, in the last couple of years, the number of people in unions are up a bit, overall the percentages are up a bit. I mean, it's still, if you go back sort of 20, 25 years, you were looking at maybe a third of people in unions. It's now more uh, more like a quarter. But what what's the, what are the trends that you're seeing? Are there particular industries where more people are joining unions? Are there? I mean, clearly, you know, I imagine that co- the membership of coal mining unions is not what it was 30, 40 yeah. years ago. But what what are the trends? Where are where is the growth that you're seeing in, in terms of unionised workforces? So overall, we've seen growth for four years in a row now. So we're a growing movement. Thousands of people, particularly during the pandemic, have been turning to unions to protect their job security, their pay. And of course, what's been really important to a lot of people is proper PPE and safety standards at work during this pandemic. Um, So we're now UK wide 6.6 million. Do you think that in the last few years, the unions had a bad press? I mean, partly it's become a very political thing. Tories always saying that Labour in hot to the unions. There's this very macho fight for the leadership of Unite going on, which all feels that all feels quite retro and you know 1970s and beer in sandwiches and walkouts and burning brazes and that sort of stuff, which doesn't seem to have much to do with the modern day workforce. Is that is there a sort of a perception problem with unions? Well, the the press doesn't always match up with popular <laughs> opinion, dare I say. Um, because what we've seen in terms of opinion polls and also things like, you know, what's called the veracity uh, index, who do people trust? Our figures have been going up while bankers, politicians and business leaders have been going down. I don't take any pleasure in that. I'm just and journalists that. probably as well. <laughs> journalists, as NUJ members, uh, I, I'm sure you're up there too. But, you know, many people trust the people that we organise, whether that's, you know, nurses, health workers, teachers, firefighters, those are the sorts of people uh, that 
the population at large puts a lot of faith in, and that's reflected in support for trade unionism. I think people support our values. It's been um, suggested of late that this is a Conservative government that's gone further and further to the left. They're paying people's wages with furlough, spending money though all over the place. Um, you know, is this is this shift to the left gone as far as Boris Johnson inviting? you and union leaders in for, well, but I assume it's sort of virtual beer in sandwiches at the moment on Zoom, but what's the relationship like between this government and the unions? Well, we we have pretty good access and I'm really proud that we played a big role in designing the furlough scheme. You know, that was around 10 million livelihoods at its peak that were being supported. And also I think we've been proved right that by protecting jobs, keeping money in people's pockets, the economy will recover much more quickly as people spend that money in local shops and businesses. So that's that's kind of hopefully a good news story for everybody. Don't pull the plug too soon would be our message on that. But I think, uh, you know, the jury's still out on the government. Look across the Atlantic, see what President Biden has done, how ambitious he's been in terms of investing in new jobs to deal with these big challenges we're facing, big disruptions like climate change, automation, you know, trade deals. We're facing those challenges now. And the government, I think, has got to put its money where its mouth is and invest in decent jobs in those parts of the country that desperately need them most. And would you rather, in terms of sort of trying to project that that image of unions, would you rather if... The uh, sort of unions, union leaderships focused on the jobs of millions of people in Britain rather than necessarily on, you know, Keir Starmer's job or who's in or out of the, the Labour Party. Try to separate those two things. Well, gen- generally in life, I think it's much better to be talking about ordinary people's jobs uh, than a few jobs in Westminster, who, who's ever they are. But I do defend, you know, unions learned very early on in our history that, We could fight the good fight workplace by workplace, but we do need fair laws. And, you know, it was unions that fought for the right for workers to have holidays, paid holidays. That wouldn't have happened without unions. The national minimum wage now heralded as a great success. But I can tell you, I was there. There was a lot of opposition. It was going to, you know, destroy um Britain at one stage it seemed uh but you know now people know that's a success well it was unions that fought for that and of course during this pandemic who drafted uh government guidelines to keep workers safe you know unions had a very important hand on that pen so you know, it is important that we engage with politicians. It is important that we have a voice and it's important that we get the sorts of laws and rights that working people deserve. That was Francis O'Grady, General Secretary of the TUC, the Trades Union uh, Congress, setting out uh, her view of the union movement. Well, let's speak to one of those unions now. Gary Smith is the General Secretary of the GMB Union, uh, which actually recently won a landmark case for better rights for Uber drivers. And we discussed the challenges facing the unions in the wake of the pandemic. Um, I think there's a number of uh, issues that we have. First of all, the nature of work has changed enormously. You know, we've gone from manufacturing industry. Manufacturing has continued to decline and areas like manufacturing tended to be well unionised and actually better paid jobs. So there's been structural changes in the economy. And frankly, unions like ours, I think, have struggled to keep pace with some of that. 
Um, but there is also, I think, a problem in society and a lot of people, particularly young workers, are now conditioned to have very low expectations about their experience at work. So pay is often low and that has become the norm for many. And also insecure employment has become the norm for many people in our society uh, as well. And um, raising people's sights, giving people hope and getting them understanding the power that they have if they're organised. In the past, the GMB has given millions of pounds to the Labour Party. You've said uh, recently, I think, that that's uh, under review. What, what stage is that review at? Uh, when I was elected, I made it clear that we would have to carry a fundamental review of our budgets. Um, and so all our affiliations will be tested to see if they're giving us value for money and if it's the right thing to do. You know, we've got financial pressures and membership pressures we're feeling ourselves as a union after we've gone through the, or as we go through the pandemic, you know, we have lost big numbers of jobs in some parts of the economy. And so there is just an economic reality for us as a union. We have to review our budgets as any organisation would, and we have to determine what our priorities are. It sounds like you don't currently think you do get value for money for donating to to Keir Starmer's Labour Party. It's it's most definitely not about Keir Starmer. The challenges the Labour Party's got, I think, predate uh, by a long time Keir Starmer. Uh, I've made the point that when Labour lost the Copeland by-election a number of years ago, that should have been in Canary in the mine for Labour. That is a community in West Cumbria with Sellafield, the nuclear site, is the biggest employer. I think about half the people in the constituency are union members, and they voted Tory. Um, that predates Keir Starmer. So this is most definitely not about Starmer or the current Labour leadership. This is just about our philosophy and approach as a union. Uh, our members come first always, not party politics. And our priority is fighting for jobs and work. And is that part of the issue, that if you have got, you know, a broader base of workers in different, you know, sectors and industries and, you know, politics is changing a lot and, you know, the traditional voting patterns aren't quite the same, that actually if you're going to represent your members, if lots of them are voting for different parties, whether it's Conservative or Lib Dem or whatever it might be, it doesn't make sense for you as an organisation to represent your members if you are seen as being the sort of uh, a, a wing of the, the funding arm of the Labour Party. Well, I, I mean, the other thing, obviously, you tell by my accent, I'm Scottish. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I'm, I, a lot of members in Scotland don't vote. Like that. I find that, you know, personally, I find that disappointing. I, I you know, I would love to see a radical uh, Labour government really focused on creating jobs and getting the economy going. Um, but, I, I know what the reality is in Scotland, and this is very important as well. We organise in Ireland. The Labour Party does not organise in Ireland. Um, so we've got Swedish members who don't currently vote Labour and identify with Labour. Uh, I personally would like to see the return of a Labour government, but I've got to live with the political realities we currently confront as a union. If we are credible at work, if we are fighting over safety, if we are fighting over paying conditions and job security, that's how you get political credibility and your members uh, might be more inclined to listen to you about politics. That was Gary Smith, the General Secretary of the GMB uh, Union, speaking to me earlier on this morning, slightly distancing himself from the Labour Party, he just wants to get on and focus on his members, but reviewing uh, the funding that the GMB gives to the Labour Party. Uh, Meanwhile, today, ballot papers go out uh, in the election to replace Len McCluskey as General Secretary of the Unite Union as Labour's biggest financial backer and a huge voting block uh, when it comes to policy. We're here to talk us through that race. Is Patrick Maguire, editor of the Times Red Box. Morning, Patrick. 
Good morning. So talk us through why this this election that most people have never have heard of is quite significant when it comes to the politics of Britain. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. Um, obviously, I, as you know, your uh, your guests this morning have been discussing, it matters hugely for workers and for business. But obviously, in the immediate term, the main impacts of the United Leadership race will be on who controls the Labour Party's purse strings and, as you say, who controls a decisive block of votes on the ruling National Executive Committee. Now, given that Keir Starmer and the people around him are preoccupied with basically winning the peace, i.e. they've won control of the Labour Party, now they need to uh, put the Corbynites to bed, as people around Keir Starmer would say, uh, would, would see it, and uh, seize control of the party for good. And that the difference between a Unite leader who is willing to say, yep, go ahead, you have my backing, uh, and a Unite leader whose raison d'etre is in the workplace and in the Labour Party to stand up for continuity Corbynism uh, or, you know, a left-wing policy agenda is massive for Keir Starmer. Um, and so who talks to the runners and riders? Who is in the uh, race to replace Len McCluskey? Red Len, as he's known often by um, Tories. Um, and, and what would it mean for the direction of the party? So there are originally, originally four contenders. Gerard Coyne, who is, uh, in inverted commas, the moderate candidate. He unexpectedly run against Len McCluskey in 2017 when Len stood down and to, to win another term that he's just seen out. He was very close to Tom Watson, Gerard Coyne, and came in in 5,000 votes of unseating Dan McCluskey. It was a shot result. And then, uh, coincidentally, uh, was sacked from his job at the union uh, on, uh, you know, on some data protection charge. Who knew uh, that, <laughs> you know, for, and for, you know, for surely nothing to do with the decision to to challenge, uh, challenge Dan McCluskey. He uh, obviously, if he wins, he has his entire pitch is he's focusing on the workplace. Implicit in that is I'm not going to do a LEN and be see myself as a player in Labour politics. But that is, you know, a huge asset for Keir Starmer because he's someone who, if you say, look, I'm going to change the leadership rules so that MPs have uh, a decisive vote and not members. Gerard Coyne is the sort of person who would say, yes, absolutely fine. Here's a blank check to do whatever you want. Then there are two other candidates running from the left. Sharon Graham, who is uh, currently one of Len McCluskey's assistant general secretaries, has sort of been slightly overlooked in commentary of the race, mainly because she's not a very loud bloke, but has a good uh, (laughs) industrial pedigree uh, and uh, has won the support of a lot of big workplaces. Then the third candidate is a chap called Steve Turner. Now, when the race looked to be between four candidates, uh, the fourth being Howard Beckett, currently suspended from the Labour Party for tweeting that Priti Patel should be deported, um, uh, best known as a very aggressive tweeter, Unite in-house lawyer, very, very close to Len McCluskey, basically his chosen successor. Um, he is feared and loathed by the <laughs> right and centre of the Labour Party. And he dropped out because he didn't have quite an, as much support and has thrown his lot in with Steve Turner. Now, when Howard Beckett was in the race and Gerald Coyne didn't look like he was going to get on the ballot, people in Keir Starmer's office would say, well, we can work with Steve Turner. He's got, a, again, a good industrial pedigree. He was, again, looking like he was trying to split the difference, being much more measured. But because there was a big fear on the left, those three left candidates all entered talks because they were worried that they would split the vote and let Gerald Coyne in. Steve Turner's candidacy has changed from a, 
I'm going to stand up for left-wing values, but I'm also not going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to be megaphone diplomacy. Keir and I can talk it out in private. Now he's adopted wholesale, basically, um, Howard Beckett's more, let's say, <laughs> colourful ideas, including the, the most one of which, you know, um, I hate to say this to, on Times Radio, but if, if Steve Turner wins, thanks to Howard Beckett, you'll have a competitor on your hands. Unite TV. Uh, with a professional standard 24-hour rolling news operation in every region the union organises in. So if you thought GB News was something, uh, when do you see United <laughs> TV? And just finally, Keir Starmer's relationship with the unions, it was, and I've discussed this earlier with Tim Bell as well, particularly Ed Miliband was really hammered by this, with the Tories really going on about him being in the pocket of the unions and adding hot to the unions and all of that. Um, Tim felt there, was a slight, there had been a slight shift, actually, in public attitudes towards unions, and maybe it wasn't quite the pejorative that it, it had been before. But what is Keir Starmer's relationship with him? Because ultimately... Um, he needs to get money from somewhere. He's coming to get it from lots of the unions. If lots of the unions say, look, we're not going to get involved in politics anymore, we're going to go and, go and sort our members, that leaves a financial hole. But does it free him up to sort of do more of what he wants to do? Well, I mean, as ever, the question is, who is Keir Starmer? Keir Starmer, the leadership contender, indeed Keir Starmer, the barrister, was very close to the unions. He was tra- effectively not quite a trade union barrister, but he was always interested in the rights of uh people to organise in their workplaces, uh, you know, uh, the rights of unions against uh, big employers, against the police, etc, etc. But now, obviously, he's surrounded by, now he's buttressed by the the faction of the Labour Party, i.e. the Blairite faction of the Labour Party, who would really like, dearly love nothing more than to rip up the union link and start again, despite the name of the party being the Labour Party. So it's very, very tricky. But I think, actually, as you say, that, that slight thawing in public attitudes towards the unions is key and if you look at the stuff i mean look i don't blame people for not passing the small prints of, uh, of rachel reeves's uh you know lectures uh that she that she <laughs> gives of a weekend which i do that's what i'm here for and even people like rachel reeves considered by many to be on the right of the labor party are now making very positive noises about unionized workforces etc etc so whereas he's i don't think um Keir Starmer's vibe is going to, he's going to be at the Durham Miners Gala, although I'm sure he might be. Uh, he's not that kind of unionist, but I do think we're going to, be, we're going to hear quite a lot subtly uh, uh, the sort of Gerald Coyne type, not, uh, you know, not the Miners Gala, Miners Gala banners, but uh, unions will be central to Labour's policy offer, I think. Patrick McGuire, thanks so much for joining us. Patrick McGuire, there, Times Red Box editor. Of course, you can get Patrick in your inbox every morning, Monday to Friday. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>